Uh, last weekend, uh, we as a family went to London, and we were, were travelling on a very packed tube, and um, the, the, well, the, the children really got into a conversation with a group of, uh, of ladies who were going out on a night out. Um, and uh, uh, this, uh, this, this group said they were going to the circus. Now, I was kind of overhearing that, and I thought, well, that sounds totally unappealing. Um, I'm not a big fan of the circus. They're, they're, they're celebrating someone's birthday, and they wanted to go to the circus. And at that moment, as I heard that, I thought I, I would, that would be the, the worst thing to do for me in this moment. I'm, I'm hungry. All I could think about at that point was we were trying to find somewhere to eat. Um, I wasn't really listening to the conversation, and Nikki told me afterwards that the circus is, in fact, a fancy restaurant. Um, and I, I looked it up on the internet later, and it boasts of having ridiculously tasty food. Now, if only I had known that. I would have been much more interested in the conversation. You would have had me at the word ridiculously. Um, they weren't asking us to join them, of course. Um, but the point is, if you get the wrong idea about something, uh, and the idea that you get is that it's not for me, we can miss something that we really love. Um, C.S. Lewis called it making mud pies in the slums. He, he, he imagined a child who, who wanted to keep on making mud pies in the slums when somebody is offering them a holiday at the seaside. And and the child wants to stick with their mud pies because they cannot imagine what the seaside would be like and the fun of the sand and ice creams and splashing about in the sea. They want to stick to what they know. And we do this with God. That's Lewis's point. He says how God offers us happiness beyond our wildest dreams. And yet, he says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. When we think that God is out to spoil our fun, we will hold back from him. When we think that all God wants to do is to mess with our lovely mud pies, then we will grow cold towards him. And the Bible says that God wants to give us life. And God wants to give life in its fullness. He wants to give joy that has no measure. And if we might just look up from our mud pies for a moment, we would see what it is that he is offering. And we're working through John's Gospel. Um, today we come to this conversation between Jesus and a woman from Samaria. The first six verses set up the scene. Uh, we, we heard last time Jesus is drawing the crowds and, uh, and people are coming to be baptised, just like those who went to John the Baptist. And, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 4 that this is attracting attention from the Pharisees. It seems that Jesus isn't ready for a confrontation with the religious leaders at this time, so he leaves the southern part of the country And he goes back up north to where he grew up. And the journey takes him through Samaria and he stops for rest. And as he stops to rest, he gets into this conversation. And and in this conversation, we come back to a theme that we have already seen in John's Gospel. Um, A a great theme in John's Gospel. You see, uh, John chapter 1 tells us how, how the Word, this person who is the Word, in whom is life. And the life is the light of all people and that life comes. And the word became flesh, we call him Jesus, the son of God, is born son of man, and he's come to offer life to the world. John chapter 3 ends with the offer of life ringing out. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. And the question which reaches out from the pages is, do you want to live? Do you want life? This is a very unlikely conversation in John chapter 4. Uh, It might not seem so immediately to us, 
Uh, we have Jesus, he's thirsty. A woman comes to draw water from the well. She's got all the things that she needs to do that. And so he says, would you mind getting a drink for me? Uh, she doesn't say no to that. She is baffled that he would even ask her. Verse 9, how can you do this? Verse 9, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There's an awful lot going on under the surface here. Uh, the, the Samaritans were a group of people who had um, descended from Israel. Um, and then many, many years previously, the Assyrian Empire had invaded um, and, and taken people into captivity. But those who had been left behind were, became this group who were the Sam- Samaritans. The, the Assyrians then moved in other peoples from around the world into their area. So, so the Samaritans were mixed in their heritage. Uh, and yet they were religiously zealous people. Uh, the, the Samaritans were, were kind of purists in a way. Uh, they thought they were better than the Jews. Um, and, and what they did is they only had the first five books of the Bible. That was their, their Bible, just the first five books. Uh, and they didn't think much of the Jews. The Jews returned their animosity with interest. Uh, there's no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. So much so, verse 9 says, um, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, and the footnote puts it, uh, they do not use the dishes that the Samaritans have used. And so Jesus asking the woman to share her bucket and her drinking implement, that's unthinkable. It's it's a bit like a a Manchester City supporter asking a Manchester United supporter for their scarf on a cold day. He would rather freeze to death a hundred times, wouldn't he? Um, A typical Jew would rather thirst to death than to share their cup with a Samaritan. To make matters worse, she's a woman. But Jesus, he just seems oblivious to all of this. He just wants a drink. But once she raises the objection, it seems that Jesus' heart pours out. In effect, she's kind of saying to Jesus, how can you want to have anything to do with someone like me? And Jesus' heart bursts at that. Verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you ask him, he's going to give you life. Do you want life, is what he's saying. And she doesn't know the gift of God. She doesn't know what God would would freely give to her. She's she's making mud pies in the slums with no idea of what a holiday at the sea would be like. She doesn't get it. In verse 11, we see she doesn't get it. She says, you haven't even got a bucket. Apparently, this is one of the deepest wells in the land. It's still there today. It's about 100 feet down to get to the water. It's a long way. You've got to have a big rope to get some water from this well. You haven't even got a bucket. And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? This well had been dug by Jacob. It's been there for 2,000 years. 2,000 years this well has been serving the land, serving the people, providing for their thirst. An established means of, of sustenance. What she really says to him, she's not really asking a question. She's saying, you are not greater than Jacob. We owe to Jacob the ability we have to sustain ourselves. We've had this for thousands of years. What have you got? Well, she's not really asking what he's got. She's more saying, Jesus, you can't do better than that. 2,000 years of sustaining us on this land. You can't do better than that. She's locked into a world of things that she has always known. She cannot imagine any more. Now, given what she knows, Jesus has got nothing for her, as far as she's concerned. But what has he got? See verse 13. 
He says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's not talking about drinking the the natural water. He's not talking about water from the well. He's using the idea of water and, and being thirsty to tell about the gift of God. A thirsting is a powerful experience, isn't it? Uh, on a hot day, every part of our body uh, longs for water. Our, our, our mouths get dry. Our, our throats become like sandpaper. We begin to feel faint, and all we can think about is getting a drink. And the Bible compares that physical experience to what happens deep within a person. In Isaiah 55, the Lord speaks through the prophet, and he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And then explains what it means when he says, come to me and your soul will live. Come to me for life. As Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And so Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Instead, that water will spring up in them. It will be an eternal spring of life that will go on forever and ever. Jesus is offering the gift of God. Something that will satisfy the deepest aching of your soul. He will give the very thing that you were made for and designed for. The only thing big enough to fill your heart with pure happiness. He offers the way to eternal pleasures in the presence of God. And this gift does not fail. It says you will never thirst. This gift is enough to satisfy you forever and ever. You, a gift big enough so that you will never need to be done with it. You will, you will never need to be bored of it. You will never outgrow it. You will never wear it out with use. It will go on and on and on. It is an outstanding offer of life. Eternal life. Life in eternal dimension. To the full. The woman looks up from her mud pies. See verse 15? She says to him, give me this water. Uh, I don't think she understands quite what Jesus is saying. Uh, I I don't know if she even thinks it's real, but there's this, what if? No, no, what if there could be that answer to her heart's ache? No, what if there could actually be something that would meet the deep longing inside her? As C.S. Lewis again um, speaks about how the experience of physical hunger implies that food exists. doesn't mean you'll get food, but it implies that food exists. Um, In the same way, he says, the desire in the human heart for paradise, that secret longing in our hearts, that that, that thing within us that says this world is not as it should be. There should be more. The ache for it to be more, for this not to just be it, implies that that world exists. And the woman grasps that implication. And what if there could be water that truly satisfies? What if there could be water of eternal life? Give me this water. Again, Jesus is in a conversation about life. The question reaching from the pages, do you want to live? She says, give me the water. And then in verse 16, the conversation turns. Now now that she has asked for the water, Jesus directs the conversation to where the water can be found. He directs the conversation towards finding life. 
You see, in, in this conversation, there are so many reasons why this conversation shouldn't even be happening. So many barriers in this conversation. There are social barriers and ethnic barriers and, and religious barriers, these differences between the Jewish man and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus just seems oblivious to those. He walks over the barriers. The woman's astonished by it. But there is one barrier that Jesus is not oblivious towards. See in verse 16. He says to her, go, call your husband and come back. Why does he ask that? You might remember at the end of John chapter 2, it says that Jesus knows what is in a person. He's like a surgeon. He cuts right to the point of need. We've been told as well, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if he's going to take away the sin, he needs to know where it is. So he says, go call your husband. The woman says, I haven't got a husband. And then Jesus very, very, very gently reveals the sad truth of her reply. Not, not the sadness that she has no husband, but that she's had five. And the man she now lives with is not her husband. And, and, and as he says that, we just begin to understand a little bit more about why it is that this woman has come alone to collect water. Why it is that she is there in the heat of the day. Now all the other women of the town would come together as a group and they would come when the sun wasn't high in the sky. Uh, but either they won't allow this woman to join them or she cannot bear to be with them because of the shame that she carries. But she comes alone in the heat. And the reason why she's only had five husbands we can only guess. But these were times when, when marriage was much more practical than in our times. Mar marriage was needed for legal protection. It was needed for survival. And the fact that the, the man she now has is not her husband, what it means is that he has taken her without giving her the dignity of legal protection. It implies that at this point, she couldn't find someone who would do that for her. She's gone from marriage to marriage. She's tried and she's tried again and she's tried again. And it's not worked. Like the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This woman hasn't found what it is that she was looking for. In verse 15, when, when she says, uh, when she asked for the living water, she, she, she says she doesn't want to have to keep coming to this well. She comes to this well alone, as, a, as an outcast in her community, carrying that shame. And she comes to draw water, but she goes away thirsty. Now, why does Jesus draw attention to all this? It's very delicate. But it's clear that he is pointing out something that is not right. He's pointing out something that's not right. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 the Lord says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This woman illustrates that verse. She's dug her own system. She has jumped from relationship to relationship. The implication is that she has done so immorally and she can't find what she's looking for. The systems that she has dug for herself cannot hold water. The gift of God is held out. Held out today. There's living water. There's eternal life. Soul <laughs> satisfaction. Eternal pleasures in the presence of God. The gift of God is held out and we have all turned from him. Now all of us, one way or another, we dig our own systems. We, we try to find our, our meaning or our happiness without God. And we invest ourselves. We put our hopes into 
into our family life or or our relationships or our career or or popularity or or into holidays or retirement or homes or or we build our security in some kind of niche interest. There's so many ways we can dig our own systems, not ways that are wrong in themselves, but if we look to those ways to find life, sooner or later we'll find that they all fail us. Last weekend we went to Twickenham to watch the rugby a good day, 81,000 people crammed into the stadium. And one of the things that impresses me about, about that number of people in that stadium is how efficient the toilets are. It really is amazing. Um, I, I took my boys in, thousands of men using these long troughs to empty their bowels. The grossest thing, though, is when, is when these, these men are going in with their drinks. It's disgusting, isn't it? They, they rest them kind of precariously on the top of these troughs. Horrible thing. Sorry, ladies, to have to share that with you. <laughs> Mixing drinks and toilets is a bad thing, isn't it? Now, Jeremiah 3 describes our sin. Describes our sin as we turn away from the pure, fresh water and we dip our cup in the toilet trough. It's only going to be bad for you. If we don't stop it, if we don't stop doing that, we will get to the end, never finding what we're really looking for. And Jesus will not be oblivious to that barrier. So he gently confronts the sin in this woman's life. If she's going to drink from the spring of living water, she has to take her face out of the broken cistern. And so do we. And and I think the woman gets it. I I think she understands it. Verse 19, she doesn't protest. She doesn't make excuses. She says, I I can see that you're a prophet. This is true. What what you pointed out, you, you put your finger right on the issue in my life that has to be dealt with. Then, then she goes on to speak about places of worship. And, and it could look like it's a red herring. It could look like maybe she's trying to deflect from her personal situation into a religious argument. But I'm not quite sure that's what she's doing. See, as, as they stand at this well, they can see the, this mountain. It's called Gerizim. And the Samaritans have built a temple on Gerizim. 150 years earlier, the Jews had gone and attacked and destroyed that temple. It was in ruins. But the Samaritans still went to Gerizim to make their sacrifices. The Jews, they had their temple in Jerusalem. That's where they went to make their sacrifices. It was a massive point of contention between these two groups. The the hatred for these groups was, was seen in these two different places of worship. And yet for this woman, in this moment, that ancient argument about places suddenly becomes personally significant. Now if she's going to turn from her broken system, She's going to turn away from her sin and get the gift that God is offering. Where does she go for forgiveness? The Samaritans would say, you take your sacrifice up Mount Gerizim. You go to this mountain, you present your sacrifice there for your sin. The Jews would say, no, you go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that's where you go to present your sacrifice for your sin. And at this point, that question really matters. She has to know, where does she go with this sin that must be forgiven? And what does Jesus say? He answers by announcing that the times are changing. That these arguments of our places are becoming old. He says in verse 21, a time is coming. He says it again in 23. A time is coming and has now come. You don't have to worry about whether it's this mountain or whether it's Jerusalem. Not that there's not a distinction, he says. The Samaritans, they've rejected most of God's word. 
the Jews, they had the whole of God's revelation thus far. And God has revealed his plan for salvation would come through the Jews. There is a distinction. But the woman is right to want to know where she should go for worship. Where should she go to find forgiveness for her sin? Jesus says times are changing. That the times are changing. True worshippers will worship in the spirit and truth. Now Jesus isn't kind of internalising worship. He's not saying in your spirit. He's saying in the spirit. He's not talking about a kind of a new set of, of emotions or, or, or making it all about kind of what goes on for me as an individual. He's talking about a change of place. No longer this mountain, no longer Jerusalem, because those pictures and patterns have pointed toward a greater reality and now the times are changing because the greater reality has arrived, not in Jerusalem, but now in the spirit. And what has changed is that God himself, The word who is God has become flesh and he's made his dwelling among us. And so the place to go and meet with God is no longer the temple building. That ancient shadow has now been fulfilled and God has come to live among the people. God is spirit, he says. The place to meet him is not restricted to bricks and mortar. In John 1, Jesus says, he is the stairway to heaven. He himself connects heaven and earth. In John 2, Jesus puts himself as the true temple. You see, this Jesus who has come, he is full of grace and truth. He has the spirit without measure. He has come to baptise with the spirit. And as we saw in his conversation with Nicodemus, that all who believe in Jesus are born of the spirit and belong to the kingdom of God. What is changing is that Christ has come and he is the beginning of the new age. He's bringing it in that great future that had been promised of old. It's arriving. The age of the spirit has dawned. So the true worshippers will worship in the spirit and truth. The true worshippers aren't going to be defined by which building they go to. But by those who believe in Jesus. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now all who want their sin removed must go to him. All who want to turn from broken systems and receive the gift of God and and have eternal life, they must believe on Jesus. And all who do, all who believe on Jesus are born of the Spirit. They participate in the kingdom of God, the age that dawns in the work of Christ. Now the first part of this conversation is about satisfaction. This gift of God, that water of life, and then it moves to worship. They're not separate subjects. This worship is the, the, the happiness and the thankfulness that flows from having sins taken away. It's that, it's that soul satisfaction found when we delight in the presence of God. Worship worked out in lives laid down in glad submission to our God and Saviour. True worshippers, they will worship in the spirit and truth. The woman doesn't follow all of this, I don't think. I I don't think she keeps up with Jesus. In verse 25 she says, I I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain it all to us. And then Jesus replies with no ambiguity. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now she wanted to know where to go for her sin to be taken away so she can drink the living Jesus says, it's me. You come to me. No, no, we might not follow all of this. Now, maybe like this woman, we don't really know the gift of God. Maybe we, we're happy with our broken systems and want to keep making mud pies in the slums because the offer of the holiday at the sea sounds too unrealistic. 
And yet it could be that we have that aching inside and it becomes too loud. And unlike this woman, if there is a, a chance of living water, if there's a chance for our, our sin to be taken away, wouldn't we say with her, give me that water? Now maybe we don't get all that Jesus says about worshipping in spirit and truth. But we can hear when Jesus says, I am he. He is the one who promises the gift of God. He is the one who promises to give living water. He promises to give eternal life to all who trust in him and take away our sin. We can keep messing about in the dust. Keep drinking from broken systems. Or we can look to Jesus. The Bible says God wants to give us life. If we look up from our mud pies for a moment, we might see what he wants to give. And we can follow the, the way of this woman as she finds life. We, we can track with her as, as we see this woman coming to find this life. And we'll see it as we go on next time and see how the story unfolds for her. But you know, this is the, this is the real heart-melting point of this. Now, when... When we find that our hearts are cold towards God, there's, there's something here that I think can melt the ice. Now, in, the, in this passage, we, we, we track with this woman, don't we? we? We follow her finding life. But that's not really the foreground. What is being put upon us in this passage is not that the woman is finding, but that this woman is being found. Look at verse 23. <coughs> Verse 23, Jesus says, The true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. It doesn't say the kind of worshippers the Father will put up with or accept, but the kind of worshippers he seeks. He is actively looking for these worshippers. And, and John says that the, when we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. So, so what does Jesus do in this passage? Go right back to the beginning, right back to verse 4. Verse 4 says, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Did he? Did, did he have to go that way? That there were other options before him. He's not in a rush. The next time we find that he's happy to spend a few days at this, at this town. He's not rushing. What, why did he have to go this way? Isn't it because the Father is seeking true worshippers? Isn't it Jesus had to go this way because... This way he would find this woman. God seeks true worshippers, regardless of gender or ethnicity or, or moral character. This woman in this passage is being wonderfully found because God wants to give his gift of life to her. The Father seeks. And we see his seeking activity in the, in the life of Jesus. And, and yes, of course, this woman, she's got to turn from her broken sisters. She has to let go of the sin she's holding on to to take hold of the life that's being offered. But that's in the background. The foreground is that the Father is seeking those with their heads down the toilet to bring them the mercies he's provided lovingly in his dear son. Because he gave his son. Because he loved the world. He loved the world in all of its badness. So that those who believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And God will not let that gift go unopened. So he seeks and he finds. And he seeks the unlikely and the unnoticed. And he seeks those who are alone and ashamed. And he seeks those who have tried again and again and again and again and again to drink from the broken systems. And they can't make it work. And they don't know what's going to come next. 
He seeks those like this woman who aren't really looking for him. He seeks all sorts to give the free gift of life and bring them to trust in Jesus. So what about us? Now God isn't out to spoil our fun. He seeks true worshippers, holding out the gift of life, holding out endless happiness with Jesus. Let's not refuse him. Now, the reason that you're here this morning might be because he is seeking you right now. And Jesus says, I am he. He is the one you can trust. He offers living water. Will you refuse him? And then, what about those who have been found? What about those of us who have come to Jesus to trust him? No, still can't we be, like, like C.S. Lewis said, we can still be half-hearted creatures, fooling about with nonsense when infinite joy is offered. We still think we know best. We still cannot let our imaginations grow toward the scope of what the Bible promises. It can still be that the Lord just finds our desires too weak. We're too easily pleased with fluff and dirt. Why would we harden our hearts to the relentless gracious grace of our God? And why would we go back to broken systems when he offers us living water? And why would we hold on to our sin and not bring it to the Lamb of God who takes it away? Why would we not worship? Why would we not lay the whole of our lives down in glad obedience and happy service to our wonderful Saviour? In a moment we're going to sing when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And then the final verse says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Our Father in heaven, please would you help us to see your great grace and love in the Lord Jesus. And may we trust him. Amen. Amen.